0: Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. special guest Dr. Derek Voorhees the president of Boise Baba College to bring the message today welcome doctor good morning good morning it's so good to be here with you all I'm privileged to have the opportunity to have made a connection with both churches now one so privileged to relieve John on occasion when at City Church on, on a weekend maybe he need to take a break and also Bren and now they're both gone and so with the church merger it's privileged to be here with all of you and man I love this I love the beauty of the bride coming together like this, and blessings to you all in this in this journey together. Uh, may it be a glorious testament to to Boise about how God's people collaborate and work. so I, I'm grateful for this church in so many ways in In nineteen forty nine, Huffy, the company that makes bikes, they invented. Training wheels. Training wheels transformed how generations of kids would learn to ride a bike. Maybe you learned how to ride a bike with training wheels. Training wheels help, you know, prevent kids from tipping over, from falling, from wiping out, from getting hurt. And then, and then once they kind of get their balance, you know, on on that bike and kind of get used to riding, where the training wheels aren't unnecessary, are then it's it's time to remove the training wheels and set them aside. And and then a whole sort of emotion, set of emotions gets gets introduced, like thrill and terror all at once. I remember when the training wheels were taken off my bike, I remember wiping out my neighbor's bush. So that has stuck, if that tells you, right? So there's this element of of season where the training wheels come off, and I think that's actually a decent metaphor for for Christian discipleship, that actually in our journey of, of following Jesus and the process of becoming more like Christ, training wheels get taken off at some point in our journey to ride this path set before us that God has for us and it's kind of like spiritual adulting. <laughs> and it's a process that we're in for a while when those training wheels come off that we are kind of forced to that moment to think the way Jesus thinks and to really live the way Jesus lives. And in this ride, I think what Jesus wants us to do is, is not just enjoy the, the breeze in our face, but actually be more aware of the people around us as we're on this ride. And I think the training wheels force us to do otherwise. And so removing us, actually, I think Jesus kind of focuses in on us. His three-year ministry, with, when He's here on earth, He'll develop His 12 protégés, and He wants them to take notice of people. They certainly have, a, have an idea of the kingdom and that mission that Jesus is on, they've joined that, but He really wants them to really take notice and to be mindful of and to care about all kinds of people, about every person I mean, these men are pretty passionate, or they wouldn't have committed their life to Jesus. They're passionate to be with Jesus, to see His kingdom come. And then we get to John 4, (laughs) where the training wheels are taken off. Clearly, they're taken off, and they don't quite understand all that's in store for them with regards to loving all people in the kingdom and that initiative, and to love as Jesus loves. It's as difficult as being a... Jewish Galilean man in the first century hanging out with some first century Samaritans. There's a lot of work to do once these wheels come off. Now, the best thing about when parents take the training wheels off, the best thing is them running alongside, you know, kind of holding the seat as you're figuring out your problems, get, maybe they got their hand on the handlebar just to make sure they guide you and, and, because it's a little unique, you know, not to have those training wheels to rely on, so the parents are right there, and I think the best thing is that Jesus is doing that with the 12, with us, that he's removed the training wheels, and here we are, but he's never going to just abandon us. He's going to run like a good parent. He's going to be with us because he is so earnestly interested that we accept all people. That we love all people. And for those guys, even those Samaritans. So here's the setup for this section we're going to talk about. Just think a bit for me about the flow of thought between chapters 3 and 4 of the book of John. Jesus has been witnessing about life in God and real life in God to two different people. We know in John 3, he met with that Jewish Pharisee Nicodemus under the cloak of darkness when no, none of his buddies would see him talking to Jesus. And as a result of that conversation with Jesus. Nicodemus has a transformation of life. We'll see in chapter 7, actually in John 7, actually Nicodemus kind of mildly stands up for Jesus amongst his pharisee buddies. And then all the way at the end in in John 19, we'll see Nicodemus actually he's there helping with the burial of Jesus. So this transformation a long ways Nick comes in this journey of his first encounter in John 3. But then there's a second person that Jesus witnesses about God's real life to, and the second person is that multiple times wedded woman at the well, Jacob's well, that in broad daylight in chapter 4 had this conversation about what life in God really is about, and as a result of that conversation, as you know, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, the whole town is now coming out to, uh, to see Jesus. Now, we need to bear in mind some things. Just to remind you, I'm sure Brynn has touched on some of this. At Jacob's well, in that conversation that Jesus has with that Samaritan woman, we need to recall some of the historic tension that exists with Jesus and and the Twelve in Samaria. Even verse 9 says the Jews and Samaritans don't associate with one another. What's going on with that? Well, a little history here. It Actually, the rift kind of began all the way back with the Assyrians. In 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came and they... In, in conquest, they took over the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, and in part of their colonizing of it is they deported the people groups of that part throughout the whole conquered territory. I mean, it's it's a strategy of war where you mix up all the people so they can't have enough power to revolt. So you minimize the result by blending them out. And the Samaritans kind of got caught in the middle. All of a sudden, the Samaritans, kind of in the middle of Samaria, all of a sudden have brand new neighbors imported next door. Assyrian neighbors, non-Jewish neighbors, pagan people. And so over years, over centuries, they begin to compromise. They know the Old Testament. They begin to kind of compromise some of their morals, like intermarrying with non-Jewish people like Assyrians. And they this remnant kind of gets formed of this half-breed between Jewish and Samaritan blood. For generations, it's born with this mixed blood of non-Jewish blood flowing through the veins of these Samaritans. So they're kind of looked at as this half-breed, second-than, less-than. You know, the Samaritans had their, own, their whole, they had their own Old Testament. They had their own priesthood. They had their own temple where they worshiped God at Mount Gerizim. And then everything heightens up about 100 years before Jesus comes the priest from Jerusalem, John Hyrcanus, he destroys Samaritan's temple Mount Gerizim and the capital city of Samaria. And so you see Jesus, a good Jew, and his 12 good buddies, good Galilean Jews, going into a territory where there's history. I mean like historic animosity. And I think this is more than on the surface of the pages of John 4. There's racial tension, moral tension, political strain. And you know why Bryn spent two weeks on John 4? Because there's a lot of theology in this too. John 4 is a very thick theological chapter between the conversation between Jesus and this woman at the well. But in it is filled with opportunities. Opportunities for God to reveal Himself through Jesus That God's an impartial God. A couple things happen. Uh, We see God through Jesus granting eternal life, this water, this living water. We see his supernatural ability to actually understand the woman's whole story and whole life. That's only of God. And we see the true identity of God coming out in Jesus being the Messiah of all people. Not just one nation, but all nations. And in that conversation between Jesus and the woman, Jesus testifies of God being a cross-cultural, transcending barrier sort of a God, a Father. And it, it so penetrated the woman and it, so, it was so appealing to her that she accepts it and she clings to that story That and her, the whole trajectory of her life changed from that conversation that Jesus had with her at the well in such an enlivening way that she couldn't contain it and she abandons the mundane for the mission. She abandons the mundane bringing of water every day to the mission of now bringing people to the living water. Her testimony convinces those people about who the change agent was, Jesus, when she goes to the town, and the scene ends with this multitude of townspeople expressing loyal faith in Jesus. That conversation between Jesus and that woman is really about them receiving Jesus, receiving who he was. But there's a second conversation that happens. Kind of stuck in the middle of the narrative just a bit. Today's conversation is Jesus with his 12 apprentices, his 12 proteges, those 12 disciples, as they learn to kind of ride the bike for all people without any training wheels, he's really preparing them to love and to accept all people, even these Samaritans. I mean, they're like cousins in some ways. Jesus' conversation with the disciples is really about sharing him so here's the macro view of John 4 before we dive in, just to kind of step up above the whole chapter. In John 4, starting in verse 7, we have this conversation between Jesus and, and the woman, and that Samaritan woman. In verse 27, we get a hint that the, that the disciples aren't even there for that conversation. It's a bit of a private conversation. The disciples actually return from town, and their jaws are dropping and marveling that Jesus is actually talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman. Just one little inserted note there. In verse 28, the woman leaves her water pot there, and she goes to the nearby town, Sychar, and she gains interest by telling those people about her story. They know her past, but they listen to the story. It's transformational, and the folks start heading out by verse 30. And then to our section we're going to talk about today. It's only seven verses. Jesus instructs his proteges We're going to talk about that. And then in verse 39, John records that the townspeople who were coming out in verse 30, in verse 39, they believe. So there's something that's happened there between verse 30 and verse 39. From verse 30, when they're coming, to verse 39, when they're believing, we have our section. And it's its instruction to the disciples. It's an eight-verse lesson for us, to his apprentices. They missed the whole conversation with the Samaritan woman. So they have no context for what's going on. The powerful transformation they had checked out for lunch. And so in verse 31, they've returned to the well. And here, you've heard it read, let's reread it. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, kind of, they're curious, Where has anyone brought food? Has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, did that woman feed him? What's he getting at so verse thirty four. Jesus said to them, "My food, brothers, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and, re- and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together." For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you all, he's saying to his apprentices, I sent you to reap that for which you didn't didn't labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. All right, we've got some stuff to unpack here. And then by the end of the message, I'll try to bring some application for us today. So, Jesus' instruction, he really wants to kind of open the eyes of these guys. He wants them to really be prepared to witness of him to the approaching townspeople, even though they're Samaritans. In this scene of John 4 with the disciples, we're about one year into his three year ministry, about one year in. And so these disciples are still really green. Like they're really underdeveloped still. And they went to the same town that that Samaritan woman went to. They went to get some food and. Can you imagine the eyes of the people looking at that group of Jewish men coming to the Samaritan town? <laughs> and they go there, and it's the same town where the woman just testified about the crowd, and the disciples went there, and they were on mission, but not the sort of mission that Jesus was hoping. That they were on mission to, like, Buffalo Wild Wings or someplace like that. They were on mission to fill their bellies. They wanted some grub, <laughs> and they get it. And so with their hands packed and maybe some plastic bags, they're they're coming back out to Jesus, And so with food in hand, they begin to urge the rabbi to to eat. You need some sustenance. Eat. And Jesus replies. He replies that he's less interested in eating their food. Thank you very much. Smells good. I'm less interested in eating that, and I'm more focused on finishing the creator's plan. The disciples are still young. They're not quite getting this, and they don't understand what Jesus lived on what really nourished him. What The satisfaction of Jesus was doing the Father's will, doing the Father's mission, and it's something they're just beginning to understand. The training wheels are just coming off. Their eyes are going to be open. They're still novices on this, and they're thinking about filling their bellies. But Jesus, the master teacher, he takes that idea, the literal idea of food, and maybe somewhat unplanned, he takes the literal idea of food, and he develops this figurative reference about The fruit of the gospel in the woman, the greater satisfaction that he has than any of the leftovers from the disciples, that those people are coming. Jesus is about to feast on the Samaritan folks coming to receive eternal life. And he wants his apprentices to be hungry for that. Jesus definitely seeks a different type of satisfaction. In verse 34, his obedience to the Father That's deeply satisfying to Jesus. And the Father has given the Son quite a bit of a long list of things to do. The end goal of this is to see creation completely restored to its original design. And Jesus is a part of that. Go all the way back to Genesis. God works for seven days, creating all things in sky and on earth, hallmarked by the humanity bearing his image, and then. A virus entered, sin entered, and infected humanity and all creation. It was such an enticing virus that humans participated in that sin, and that allowed death to enter into God's good creation. And so, though he worked for six days, there's a lot of work yet to be done. So God works and worked to restore everything back to Eden's original design and blueprint before sin and death affected it. And Jesus came to do that. In, verse, in chapter 5, my Father is working until now, and I'm working. And then once the cross becomes firmly clear in His eyes, Jesus will pray to His Father in chapter 17, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then in chapter 19, Jesus' final prayer on the Roman cross, probably some two years after this scene in John 4, Jesus will say to the Father, it is finished. Not speaking about the expiration of his life, but the gratifying expression, his last breath, expressing the climax of his work to finish his part at that moment in God's restoration of all creation. And in fact, what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, is the same word that he says to the apostles. I came here to finish, to complete, to accomplish the work. Jesus' life on earth was focused on finishing God's mission and finishing God's redemptive work to restore, to heal the image of God in each person, in every person. And He expected to be effective. He expected his work would produce. He expected his work would would be prosperous. Listen to what he says in John 12, a few chapters down the road from where we are this scene today. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, hinting at his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But get this. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He expected this. And in John 4, if Jesus is seeking satisfaction from anything, it's not a DoorDash order that he put in. He's hungry for the fruit of people to be rescued, their lives to be restored with the real life of Eden now. And it's beginning to happen. It's actually beginning to take place in Samaria of all places. It's apparently a rural area, a farming area, because in verse 35, Jesus references a farming proverb uh, to kind of help his disciples be more mindful of all people. To be honest, the proverb, four months, and then comes the harvest. Actually, it's kind of bewildered scholars. They're not quite sure where it comes from. There's no way to find out the origin of that proverb. They're not quite sure where it came from. And, and the, the idea of harvest is not talked about anywhere else in the Gospel of John except just right here in chapter 4. And so they're a little confused about what that means, really. Many scholars actually wonder about the meaning of the proverb. Well, a simple reading is in four months from that moment will be springtime harvest of barley and wheat. That must be what Jesus is referencing. But while some harvests actually take four months, you know, grain in Jesus' day took more than four months. So what's he really saying? Four months and harvest. Four months and it'll be ripened. What's he saying? What's he up to there? It could just be a Middle Eastern oral proverb that kind of is stuck in time but he's going to unpack it and explain it in a moment scholars are also kind of confused by what jesus says next he says look the fields are ripe actually the greek word is white they're white for harvest and so the question is what crops turn white when indicating they're ready to be harvested well in the first century of samaria nothing no crops turn white saying we're ready to be picked there is nothing. The closest we get might get would be like the heads of grain in, in that part of Samaria. It might turn gray, lightly gray, indicating some white. What's he getting at here? Maybe the point is simple. Hey, the approaching townsfolk from that woman are coming. Look, the harvest is here. And so Jesus elaborates on his thinking. He says, You all think, again speaking to his twelve, you think a certain gap must exist between the sowing of seed and the harvesting of that but i tell you that i have just sown the gospel seed in that samaritan woman and it's taking root quickly and the harvest is now jesus definitely ticks by a different different timepiece timing is everything here because jesus is uh, engaged in both planting the seeds of life and now in the harvest there's There's little time to relax between the sowing and the reaping. Verse 36, already, even now. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering people for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. So because Jesus is in this with his disciples because he's running alongside and kind of holding their seat and got his hand on their handlebars with no training wheels, because he's in it with them, he's saying that the sowing of seed and the harvesting of the crops can, paradoxically, coincide. That the events unfolding before their eyes right then and there, they don't correspond to the normal agrarian calendar, And the time pattern, so get prepared, he's saying, guys. Get prepared, the townspeople are heading our way. And guess what? They are thirsty (laughs) for living water. So let's get ready to receive them. Ready? Break. At times, God's ways advance on a different timetable than ours. At times when it happens, we've got to adjust and we've got to realign and, and be nimble. Sometimes people will make decisions for Christ without much notice. I had that experience one time when I spoke at a church camp with some students, and, and you might expect this on like the last night of camp, you know, where everything's emotional, they're about ready to say bye to their girlfriend or boyfriend, and so, the, uh, and so you, you give this appeal. Well, this is the first night. I gave an, an invitation the first night, and like everybody stood up and made a decision. The youth pastors, myself, all the volunteers, we were, we were surprised. We weren't expecting that, sadly. We were not expecting that on that night, and so we were caught off guard by the timing of it. So Jesus is going to explain the timing of things here. When it comes to farming, significant labor precedes harvest. I mean, you got to buy the seed and you got to till the soil and you got to plant the seed and you need to prepare the bends and make sure the implements are all ready and you got to watch for the growth and be prepared. And when it comes to spreading gospel seed, often others do the preparatory work. And we're not. Sometimes it's not the same person doing the harvest. That's the way it is in the farm. A lot of the farmers would sow, and they'd hire some different hands to come do the sowing or the harvesting. And so Jesus speaks of these others. Who are these others in John four who could possibly be a part of this sowing? Well, maybe John the Baptist. Remember John. He's the last succession in the, uh, in the list of prophets preceding the Messiah coming. Jesus. He recently ministered in Samaria along the Jordan River but he didn't live long enough to participate in the harvest. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus is referring to the others being like John the Baptist. Maybe Jesus is speaking to himself. Others have sown seed. Maybe he's speaking about himself, others being like, hey, guys, while you're out filling your bellies, I sowed a little seed in a woman. And now she went to town. Hey, team, the time of my implanted seed, the time for that is now. Not four months, a couple hours. It's producing and he's trying to open the guy's eyes for this, usually the saying "One sows another reaps it points to that kind of sad inequality. maybe you've been there, you know the one who sows the seed, he casts the vision of the gospel, but whatever maybe they move or the people that receive the seed moved and and a lot of times the sower never really gets to see the result of the crop while another person happens to be right there by that person and and sees the joy of the fruit of the harvest and leads them to accept Jesus. But Jesus is saying that timing of, you know, the sower, maybe months or years before, and the harvester actually is now. It's compacted. It's like, hey, guys, it's like right here, right now. The fields are ready now, like ready for gathering. And Jesus has planted into that woman, and all the harvest of the townspeople is like just hours old. So team. Hey, hey, get ready. Are you hearing this? Even now. All that's about to happen with the Samaritan folk coming to Jesus. And and I think Jesus is doing something with these 12. He's not just talking about the immediate harvest. He's hinting at, and this is an example of maybe a sample, maybe a bit of an hors d'oeuvre, of the future end-time harvest. He's going to give them a taste of what the end will be. Of all nations, and here it's one nation. So get it. Jesus is giving his disciples a glimpse into the future, I think. A hint into that future, gloriously restored Eden on earth and the prosperity of Eden, the way it was designed for streams of blessing to flow from God's God's presence to all nations. He's giving a glimpse at a promise that the prophet Isaiah spoke of in Amos 9. Sorry, Amos 9. The days are coming, Amos wrote. The when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading group, grapes. The colorful image prefigures this miraculous, unceasing prosperity of lives restored. Jesus seems to be saying that that eschatological idea that Amos was hinting at and that I'm hinting at right here, that end-of-the-world idea, that age has now dawned here right now in Samaria through me, cross-culturally. His disciples are involved right here, right now, with the joy of something now, but something not yet. In this international harvest now, real symbol for future hope. And Jesus is also calling to mind another reality that others are needed others to be involved in sowing seed, not just John the Baptist, not just Jesus, not just the 12, but this pivots into our world that the others actually could be you and I. That both sower and reaper or harvester are equally essential to the harvest overall right now, but it's definitely in the end. He's preparing us to be expectant of the end and that harvest in the end. Jesus lives with different expectations than we do. He's clearly expecting something of us. He's expecting something of us to participate in helping people, all people, anybody, find wholeness again. Find real life in his new creation. Speaking of creation, there was nothing lacking in God's original creation. Nothing lacking. God's love, God's goodness filled all creation. And that original wholeness, before sin and death affected it, is now. It's now found in Jesus amongst multi-ethnic people, and the key is He's with us, run alongside us in this whole endeavor for new creation of all tribes and all tongues and all nations. And So therefore, is this real, evangelism is this real cooperative effort between God's preparatory work and what God does through people prior to us and our witness to what He's doing and has done to restore anyone to Him. You know, indeed, in John 4, there are countless parallels to the Jewish Samaritan enmity and strife. Countless parallels where peoples are divided by racial and ethnic barriers. I'm privileged to teach at the college, and one of the things I ask the college is, so what if this chapter wasn't in our Bibles? What would we not know? I wonder if John 4 is in our Bibles for us to understand that that interaction with cross-cultural people is so important, and it's challenging. It's not the person from the radically different Culture on the other side of the planet, 12 time zones away, actually, it's our neighbor. The neighbor right in our same zip code or street, likely still speaking the same language, maybe a different skin color, maybe there's different cultural uh, elements or values, different ancestry, a different history, different customs, different from one's own life, and maybe even not even expecting... Or accepting you and your idea of Jesus. Jesus is definitely impartial. Gospel is about breaking down cross-cultural barriers. Historically, in, in, in John 4, some groundwork has happened in here in John 4 for what's going to happen with Philip when the Holy Spirit miraculously kind of transports him to Syria or to Samaria and the Samaritans eagerly receive Philip, they confess their faith, they're baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus began that work and it continued through faithful, obedient people. So today, today. Do we have a sense of harvest at hand? No, I'm not a farmer, Derek. <laughs> Live in the city. Do we have an idea of cross-cultural harvesting that could take place? Consider your work colleagues. Consider your classmates. Consider your family. What? How about your neighborhood? You have already seen a picture of the, of a of a map. My neighborhood map. What if you got a piece of paper and you put your house in the middle of it, and you started filling in the blanks of people right around you? Could be your apartment, your condominium. Let's just keep it in your neighborhood though, where you live and sleep. Maybe where you. But put in put the names of the people right, right around. you. Do you know their names? Go back. Just one more slide. Go back one one more slide. Keep that up for. Do you know the names of the people running around? Could you fill a sheet in like this? Well, it's a married couple with a dog. Do you know any names? <laughs> yeah, they got 2.5 kids. Do you know any names? I mean, this is the way it has to start. Where we begin to imagine the harvest of people that I don't just kind of know who they are and the kind of car they ride or the bike they ride or what they like to do when they get off work. But imagine, imagine sowing seed onto the soil of that person's heart. You've got to begin imagining it, or reaping, harvesting faith that they might have in Jesus. Imagine how how do we start? How do I begin to love and to care for them? Well, you jot their names down on this piece of paper and you stick it on your fridge or in your, mir- your mirror in your bathroom where you see it regularly? And, and you and then you notice those people as they walk to the mailbox, as they're walking their dog, as they're out running, and you maybe in the flower bed or mowing, and you intentionally. Walk across the street. Walk across the the sidewalk. Call them out by name because you got your cheat sheet. You got their name, and you say, "Hey, not neighbor, but hey, Dave, my neighbor. Hey, Jane, Dave's wife." And you do that over and over and over and over and over. Actually, yesterday, just real life story, (laughs) was going out to get my mail. Guess who was walking out? Jane. To get her mail. Can I just be honest? I paused. And then I kept going. Because I had to, like, what am I going to say? Got it. All I said was, hey, Jane, how's Dave? I knew he was not feeling good. He's getting along. That was it. You do those little droplets all along because you're building this idea for a a trusted relationship and you have those intentional intersections across the street, over the backyard fence in their driveway, in your driveway, and you're, what you're doing is you're really learning how to pray for them by name because you're learning their stuff. And you, Now, listen, this is not an evangelism scheme to win them to the Lord. I'm not, I'm not proposing it. I'm just saying, what if we became better neighbors? Like Jesus said it, like be a good neighbor, not state farm. Jesus said that first. So what if we just became better neighbors? How does that work? Well, here's a simple step, simple way maybe to become a little more caring, a little less apathetic about my neighbors, not to be, not to be intrusive, but just to be there, participate in Jesus' redemptive work that I think he dreams about that for them. So what if? My friend Brian had a couple of steps here. The first one is this, pray. Pray for them by name. Our role today is, is to either cast some seed or to harvest their, their faith, to be prepared to maybe accept them and lead them to Jesus. But prayers become an ultimate deal here. Prayers that are prayed by someone prior to us beginning to talk to our Dave or our Jane and I expect, I, I, I'm hoping somebody's been praying for David Jane before I've met them. I think those prayers leave time and space, and they enter into time and in the untimely realm of God into eternity. And those prayers are always having a life of their own, ready to be answered at any time. And by my prayers with Dave and Jane, maybe they'll be answered. So I pray for them by name, even now, possibly. So what if you consider this phrase, my friend put it this way in our prayer point, what if we talk to God about our neighbors before talking to our neighbors about God? What if we begin talking to God about your neighbors by name? You don't have to run through all 20 of them, but pick top two or top three by name. I mean, what if I talk to God about them rather than, and wait for him to get ahead of it rather than me just thinking I've got to talk to God to my neighbor so we don't barge in with the gospel until God sets it up, and it actually becomes more natural, more friendly, more conversational. They begin to see that you've got some substance in your life. I think God waits. Here's, I think God waits to work sometimes until his people will pray. I think he wants to work. But I think maybe he's waiting for us to pray by name and then get ready. And maybe that's why we don't pray because it's like, well, if I pray, he'll do something. Uh-huh. He might actually move you or take the training wheels off, but he's running with you alongside here. So here you go, maybe maybe a way to get at it. Uh, set an alarm on your watch or phone for 4.35 p.m. It's John 4.35 where Jesus says, look, the fields are white to harvest. So what if you set an alarm for 4.35 p.m. every day, and at 4.35 you get a little buzz, a little reminder, and and you pray, Jesus, boy, thank you for your help in my life, for leading people and in salvation in my life, and for witnessing through people, Make me more aware, Jesus, about the neighbors right around me like, fill in the blank, Dave and Jane. Help me today with Dave if I see him out in the yard. Please give me the ability to know what to say. Mark Batterson puts it this way. If we pray to God regularly, irregular things will happen on a regular basis. I love that. What if we anticipate that with our neighbors? Okay, pray and then stay. Stay in their world. Listen and learn. Don't distance yourself once you kind of get to know their life and their mess wait for God to get ahead of you. They're not a project. They're a person with stuff and baggage and worries and stress and ambitions and dreams just like you and me. So stay. Bill Hull puts it this way. I like Bill Hull's quote. The environment of grace based on relationships of trust is the atmosphere in which transformation thrives. A neighbor's transformation. So friends are more apt to, more open to the truth of Jesus that you want to live by and maybe speak about when they sense a high level of trust with you. Loving people as Jesus loved kind of woos them in. So here's a statement my friend Brian said, what if we love them because we are a Christian, not just because we want them to become a Christian? What if we love them because I'm a Christ follower? I want them to become a Christ follower, but what if they never do, at least on my watch, But what if I have a chance to love them, maybe cast a little seed for someone else to harvest? What if I love them, discover ways to serve them, and genuinely care for them about what's going on in the world? To open a door, to begin to swing the door for you, to say. That's the third step. Pray, stay, and then say. Say into their life at the appropriate time when God opens the door. Oftentimes, I think the saying comes at just the right moment where life is crushing down on them, or they're at the end of the rope, or they can't bear the weight of what's going on. And Dave and Jane have shared some of those moments with me. Helps you know how to pray for them and what to say to them and maybe for your neighbor as well. You, do, you, do you know what you would say? Do you know what your neighbors, what you would say to your neighbors to help with their life's trouble? This is where you could share your story. Share your story. Let them see the cracks in your pot of life. Let them see God's grace applied to you. Share your story and eventually tell how your story found its place in God's story. Just tell your story and, and then land it in, inside God's story. Patiently look for them to ask some questions about your story and how that made sense within God's story. Don't tell them stuff until you begin asking of you. Earn the right to ask and be prepared to give a reason for the hope. Practice. Maybe a thing to do is, do you know your story? Can you, have, you, have you said your testimony you rehearsed it? What if you got together with some Christian friends and you actually kind of ran through it and you prepared in anticipation And then watch your neighbor's eyes. Look him in the eyes. Listen to the words behind the words, under the narrative, and tell your story in there. And lastly, pray, stay, say, and obey. Obey the call to do some farming. (laughs) To commit your life to be a disciple-making disciple, either planting the seed or harvesting, May, may it... May we not be hard-hearted, but may we become a people. May this church become a church that is so sensitive to the movement of the Spirit that the Spirit, who's always wanting to move you to where the gospel is ready, that we be so sensitive to go and obey and we do what Jesus said to his 12, I send you. May we be so willing to be sent on mission. Knowing that he's running alongside you, holding the seat, handing the handlebars, He's not abandoning. He is running with you. He is with you in this to impact neighbors of all nations with this impartial love. His presence really lessens whatever anxiety you might feel about this. So let's begin some praying. What I want to do is lead us in some time of prayer. I want to prompt us with some things to think about. We'll try to let it breathe a little bit in here. I I don't want to be too time-restricted, so... You want to pray out loud. You want to huddle up with, with someone right next to you to pray by name about a few neighbors. I want to give you some space like that. And I'll, I'll just drop a few things to can keep our prayer conversation moving forward over the next five minutes or so. Deal? Let's bow. Just start right now with thanking God for the neighborhood you live in. The house, the apartment, the condo, the place you're in. thanking Him for the neighbors that are right around you. Can you picture them? Why don't we pray for some of their names right now? Just utter their name. Talk to God about your feelings of casting some seed into those conversations with a neighbor. Can you imagine? Can you see? Can you visualize how that might look? talk to God about your neighbor by name and can you imagine leading them into a faith conversation? What would you talk to God about regarding that with that one neighbor? to him about the story of your life and how you would frame that up, how you would say that, how you would share that. Can you imagine holding a conversation telling your story of God's touch of grace? Can you imagine your neighbor's reaction to that. Talk to him about that. Talk to Jesus about anticipating a conversation when He would open the door for them to want Him. Can you imagine them wanting to put faith in the Messiah? okay, back to your neighbor's name or names. Pray for their eternal salvation. And pray a willing prayer of obedience that you would like to be a part of that. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.